This morning's Bible reading comes from the Old Testament book of Amos, chapter 5, verses 18 to 27. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. Well, last week we started our series and um, we began by looking at, in uh, the first two chapters of Amos, Uh, The Israelites, that is the Hebrew people living in the northern kingdom, not the southern kingdom, um, were even more wicked than the Gentile nations around them. And God brought um, judgment on all the Gentile nations and then gradually zeroed in on them and showed them that they had become a wicked people. They'd gone through a period of prosperity. Um, They'd surrounded themselves with luxury and wealth and become greedy, and as a result, they were persecuting people in a terrible and shocking way. And so God brought judgment on them. And so today, as we continue to look at uh, chapter 5 now, we're going to keep looking at what's wrong with Israel. Now, strangely enough, a passage like this, when you look at it, um, it can sound depressing at first, but actually, in the light of the whole Bible, it's inspiring. Um, because uh, we can look at a bit at, at what God has, how God fulfills this passage and, and, and what he's done for us. We're going to specifically look at Israel's problem with cheap grace, with false worship, and God's desire for his people to embrace righteousness and justice. So let's first of all look at how God judge, is judging them for uh, this idea of cheap grace. So in the, the previous verse, um, if you have your Bible um, or your, your smartphone, you can look up Amos 5 verse 17, the previous verse, because that's really important to get a bit of context. See, Israel thought that they were worshipping God in a superior way. But their worship was corrupt and God told them that they will suffer. So the previous verse, verse 17 says, there will be wailing in the vineyards for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. So just like 
in the plagues that happened in Egypt in the time of Moses, um, God will be, be to Israel was it what he was to the Egyptians, which is a horrific thought. He will engage in holy war against his people. Um, the wailing of the Egyptian firstborn, if you remember that story, um, the last of the plagues, that will be the mourning cry of God's firstborn Israel. Look at verse 18 now, which is where our passage begins, um, and describing the day of the Lord. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a day, a ray of brightness. So the Israelites thought that the day of the Lord would be a great day for them. They thought it would be a day of salvation, a victory, celebration of light. But Amos tells them the exact opposite is the case. For them, it will be a, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of judgment. Israel had always assumed that this would be the case for them, that, that for their enemies, that they, for their enemies, it would be a day of darkness and gloom. And for them, it would be a day of celebration, but it's not the case, according to Amos. God was turning on his people. And using countryside image imagery, Amos says it's like the traveller uh, will escape the line and only to be met by a bear. Um, so he, he, and he reaches the safety of his home in fear, supports himself, with his hand against the stone wall, and is bitten by a poisonous snake. Hands up if you've ever been bitten by a poisonous snake. No one. That's good. My mum, my mum was bitten by a tiger snake when she was a kid. Survived. Um, that's why I'm here today. Uh, <laughs> um, but this is the judgment of God. Those things that they thought were their security are actually such as their home. You know, you'd think that would be a safe place to be will become the location of their death. Now, the main Jewish understanding of the day of the Lord uh, is important to get our heads around this. It comes from um, another book, Joel chapter 3, which says that on that day, the Lord would put the Gentile nations on trial and his wrath would pour out on them in response to their evil and wickedness. And this is a prophecy of hope for Israel because, as it says in Joel 3.16, uh, the Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble. And here's the why it's hope. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. And it seems, though, that the Israelites have become overconfident. They've become overconfident in the protection that they would get from God. That the Lord would give them on that day of judgment protection in such a way that they don't have to worry anymore um, about how they lived their lives. They'd become overconfident in the Lord's grace. And that had turned, therefore, into cheap grace. Now, cheap grace is not a, a phrase you'll hear in the Bible, not worded like that anyway. It's a concept that's in the Bible. It's just not worded like that. It's a, it's a phrase that comes from um, the German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he said this, cheap grace is the idea that grace did it all for me, so I don't need to change my lifestyle. The believer who accepts the idea of cheap grace thinks he can continue to live like the rest of the world. Instead of following Christ in a radical way, the Christian lost in cheap grace thinks he can simply enjoy the consolations of his grace. 
Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. So cheap grace is forgetting that Jesus died for us. Cheap grace is forgetting that God is calling us to give up our lives for him. In the liturgy that we have at Mary Creek, we often say a confession. And um, we, we do this because we want to be reminded as we get together on a Sunday of our rightful posture before God. That we're only able to um, um, be in right relationship with God um, because of what Jesus has done for us. Now, in a sense, Jesus has, well, it's true that Jesus has died once and all, and, our, and if we put our faith in him, our, we are forgiven permanently, but we should keep on confessing our sins and being reminded of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus, um, because that is the posture that we should maintain for, the, for our whole lives, and it's our way of growing in holiness um, as we try and grow in Christ-likeness. The problem with the Israelites is that they just forgotten this posture. They, they, they'd lost their humili- humility before God. The Israelites had remembered that Joel 3 passage about the day of the Lord. They should have looked at the previous chapter in Joel, Joel chapter 2, which sets up the preconditions for their salvation. Joel chapter 2 verse 32 says, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. They had relied on the Lord to save them, but they were no longer even calling on his name for their salvation. What they needed to remember was God's true costly grace shown towards them. Bonhoeffer actually talks about costly grace as the alternative of cheap grace. He says, Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all he has. It is the pearl of great price by which the merchant will sell all his goods. If you are thinking about becoming a Christian, you must realise that salvation is free for you, but it's not cheap for you. It costs Jesus his whole life. Philip Yancey wrote that grace is a revolutionary idea because it seems to go against every instinct of humanity. And it's weird because as human beings, we're drawn towards all these other kind of ideas that aren't grace, like karma, like cause and effect, like earning what we receive. Grace isn't like that. Grace is free for you, but it costs Jesus his life. And grace should be a, a message that Australians run towards because it's egalitarian. It's uh, radically egalitarian. No one deserves God's grace. It makes no difference if you're the prime minister or if you're a rough sleeper. It makes no difference if you're um, a judge in a courtroom or you're a prisoner in jail. It doesn't matter if you're powerful or weak, healthy or sick, grace is offered to you freely no matter who you are. And that's an amazing thing. It's an egalitarian truth. God sees us all on the same playing field. And God's grace is equally available to each person. And people who have been captivated by grace make the most life-giving friends. So if I have a, a life tip for you, 
surround yourself with grace-filled people. Find grace-filled people. Hopefully there's some in the room today. And find yourself those people, and not necessarily the most popular people or the best-looking people or the people with the most interesting jobs or people who tell the best jokes, although sometimes they, they, those people are the same people. But look for the grace-filled people. Grace-filled people love us despite how messy we are. Grace-filled people stick with us through our struggles. Grace-filled people always hold out the hope of redemption for anybody. When there's disunity in in the community, when relationships break down, grace-filled people never give up on each other. They keep the communication channels open. They work through misunderstandings. They are sensitive, empathetic, transparent. Grace-filled people have a softness of heart. They're not self-righteous. They can open doors that have previously been shut. They love the unlovable. They make personal sacrifices to bring healing. Surround yourself with grace-filled people. Sadly, sometimes Christians are not grace-filled people, sometimes. Some churches can be ungracious places, hurtful places, judgmental. And this happens because actually being grace-filled is not as easy as it seems. When we feel wronged, we want payback. We assume conspiracy rather than incompetency in people. Why have they said that thing? It must be because they've got a thing against me. It could just be because they're a bit awkward and they don't know how to speak very well. As the poet Edward Herbert once wrote, he that cannot forgive others breaks the bridge over which he must pass himself. Only grace can break the cycle of ancient hatreds among people. And, you know, if there's like a little proverb I could give you, you will always regret refusing grace, but you'll never regret giving grace. Jesus himself could see that religious people struggled with grace so much that he often, we see in the Gospels, that he spent more time with unclean people, with sinners, the rejected people, the outcasts. He didn't really spend that much time relaxing around the super-religious people. Sometimes super-religious people can be very hurtful, and I'm sorry if that's happened to you. If you've experienced Christians being ungracious, I'm really sorry. Hopefully that's not happened in this church. It might one day, we might hurt each other. But please know that really there are amazing grace-filled people here and in the Christian community And when you experience that, you will experience radiant love, lavish, self-giving people. You'll experience people who can be composed in the face of suffering and you'll be blown away with an overwhelming sense of of divinely inspired joy. Now, I've taken a bit of a detour looking at grace and, and cheap grace and costly grace and I've done this because it's this that Israel didn't get. They forgot what God had done for them to rescue them. They did not show grace to others. Worse, they were oppressing the poor. So for that reason, the day of the Lord will not be a day of rejoicing for them, but it will be a horrific day of judgment. So God judged them for their cheap grace. Secondly, empty religion offends God and will not save you from his judgment. See, one of the the ways Israel tried to feel safe was that they... They, they thought they could be safe with God by putting on these elaborate worship services that were very over the top. And God hated that. Look at verse 21. 
I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. They stink. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. God is angry with Israel's worship, especially with the fact that they had golden calves. You can read about it that in other passages. They had golden calves on the altars. So they were, it wasn't just that like it was bad worship in like daggy worship. It wasn't like that. It wasn't like a boring sermon or it wasn't those kind of problems because if that was the case, God wouldn't be judging them. It was actually that they were worshiping other gods, you know. They were messing up their beliefs and they were, um, yeah. So imagine walking into church today and I had a big golden calf and, and then you saw people bowing down to the golden calf. You'd be outraged, wouldn't you? And this is what they were doing. God was also angry because their, their worship was disconnected with any kind of genuine faith or good works for that matter. You can't be saved by God by performing a special ceremony as if by magic, especially if it's a ceremony connected to pagan worship. God is not interested in this kind of performative false religion. And Jesus, he famously went on to attack false worship he called the teachers of the law and the Pharisees hypocrites. He says, they were like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. And he said to them, in the same way, on the outside, you appear to be people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hip hypocrisy and wickedness. Paul the Apostle continues a similar theme in Romans 4. He looks at Abraham and the way God blessed him. And he said, do you know why God blessed him? Because Abraham had genuine faith. The Israelites in the time of Amos did not have this kind of faith that Abraham had. Jesus' brother James, he says that faith that is genuine must be demonstrated by good works. You prove that you have faith in Jesus by living it out. You prove that you have faith in my driving when you hop in the car and let me drive the car. And you become the passenger. You put your faith in a doctor when she tells you to um, go to the pharmacy and get a medicine and take the medicine. You, you, you show that you have faith in your doctor when you go and you buy the medicine, you take the medicine. In the same way, you prove your faith in God when you respond to his faith in action. You live obediently. You give your money away, for example. You show acts of love to people who don't love you. You pray for people who are your enemies, for example. They're actions that prove your faith. Now, you could think to yourself, is coming to church a good work that proves my faith? Isn't this what the Israelites were actually doing? They were worshipping. Isn't that demonstrating their faith? Um, well, the answer to the first question, is coming to church a good work that proves your faith? Faith, yes and no. Uh, you know, yes, it's a good thing to do and it demonstrates your obedience. Uh, but on its own, if it's disconnected from actual faith in Jesus, if it's disconnected from uh, any attempt to be obedient to God, then coming to church does not save you at all. In fact, the only thing that saves you is Jesus and what he's done for you. What Amos is saying to the Israelites back in the times before Jesus is that their work of worship was disconnected from genuine faith in God. They did not love God they took him for granted. Ceremonies alone, and especially the wrong kind of ceremonies, do not save you. 
this empty worshipper further condemned Israel. Now, as you hear this, it would be easy to misunderstand what I'm saying. I think sometimes it's been misapplied um, to say that unless you are always feeling passionate in your worship, it's not real, genuine worship. Uh, it's not worship that God, God, God wants you to really have your heart in it when you're worshipping him. That would be a wrong takeaway from this passage. God is not judging the Israelites for their lack of emotion in their worship. He's judging them for their showiness that was disconnected with any genuine faith as demonstrated in works. You can have genuine faith demonstrated by works, demonstrated by the way you live your life, while all the same time feeling bored or feeling flat or depressed. This is, and this is why liturgy is good. Liturgy is the, the um, it te- technically means the work of the people in church. It's the stuff we do on a Sunday. And, and so like we've just, early, early in the service, we've, we've sung some songs, we've read the creed out, we've said the peace, we've sh- shaken hands with, ch- with each other. Um, after this, we've read the Bible and then we're doing a sermon now and later we're going to sing again some prayers and then even liturgy is the, the, the coffee and tea at the end. And some of these things might seem formulaic to you sometimes, but that's a handy thing to have some formula because it means if you arrive on a Sunday and you're feeling flat or bored or distracted or tired, you can still have the liturgy help you have the right posture before God. And God is pleased with you doing that. Whether your emotions, whatever place your emotions are in, you're a human being. So God is not judging them for their emotions. He's judging them for the lack of obedience. The problem is if your liturgy becomes corrupted, though, and we stop living out our faith, we stop serving each other, we stop loving each other, then we have the same problem that the Israelites had. If we worship false gods, if we treat people with neglect then we have the same problem that Israel had and this is what Amos was judging them for so God has judged them for their cheap grace for their false worship and thirdly what he God wants us to do is to participate in his righteousness and to promote his justice look at verse 24 but let justice roll on like a river righteousness like a never failing stream so if you google that verse you get Martin Luther King Jr., as if he said it. Um, <laughs> so if you look on the front cover, I've got a famous picture of the, the I Had a Dream speech, and he says that in the I Have a Dream speech. In the context of, you know, the civil rights movement at that time, he said um, African-American people are treated with injustice, and now um, he quotes Amos 5, verse 24, and he's saying he wants justice to roll on into America at that time. Righteousness like a never-failing stream and actually there's a martin luther king um, monument i think it's in washington with that verse on it now these words justice and righteousness are all through the bible and what do they mean well let me talk about it all human beings are set apart from the animals in one particular way and that is that we are made in the image of god we are god's representatives who rule the world by god's definition of good and evil And so the basis of justice in the Bible is that all humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with equal dignity and fairness no matter who you are. 
in the history of Australian Aboriginal people since colonisation, one of the things that is a good news story about the work of the missionaries is that in the 19th century, when you had the sort of bad science of Darwinism, which tried to suggest that Aboriginal people were on a lower scale in the evolutionary chain to white people, it was the missionaries who counteracted that thinking with this theology of um, all people being made in the image of God. And so you can read about missionaries in Australia sort of arguing back with the um, anthropologists and even the government saying, no, no, you cannot treat Aboriginal people as animals or as slaves. You have to treat them as equal human beings before God. This is a good news story. And so there's a great book, if you can get it, it's hard to get, I think it's out of print now, called One Blood by John Harris, which is the history of Aboriginal mission in Australia. And he talks about, you know, the, some of the bad stuff that happened, but also some of the beautiful and good stuff that happened. And he, the title, One Blood, it taps into this thinking, we are all of one blood before God. Now, the problem is, according to the Bible, we don't each all treat each other with dignity and fairness. The Bible shows how human beings are not living justly, but rather constantly redefining good and evil in our own advantage over others. Most of us in the world pursue self-preservation over justice and take advantage of those who are weaker. So in the Bible, you see people over and over again taking advantage of each other as individuals, as families, as villages, and even as whole nations. And so God chooses Abraham... In the, in the book of Genesis, he chooses Abraham to start a new kind of family which lives in the way of, of God, in the way of the Lord, doing righteousness and justice. This Hebrew concept of righteousness doesn't just mean being a good person, but it's, it's, it's talking about an ethical standard about right relationships between people, about treating each other as equals before God. It's about showing them the fairness and dignity that they deserve. And the concept of justice, which can refer to retributive justice, so you do the wrong thing and you pay the penalty, also can refer to restorative, mostly refers to restorative justice. So it means seeking out vulnerable people who are being persecuted or, or marginalised and helping them. It means advocating for the poor and changing social structures to prevent injustice. Justice and righteousness is about radical selfless a radical selfless way of life so i'll give you some examples proverbs 31 says bring about just righteousness open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves jeremiah 22 thus says the lord bring about justice and righteousness rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant the orphan and the widow psalm 146 the lord god upholds justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry the lord sets the prisoners free he loves the righteous, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. And the word wicked means a person who mistreats another human being, ignoring that they are made in the image of God. And the story of Israel, tragically, is that what Amos is pointing to is that at one point in their history, they were the ones who were mistreated by the Egyptians. God freed them. And then now they are the ones, as free people, mistreating others. They are the ones who have become the wicked people. It's a tragic story. So God sends prophets such as Amos to declare Israel guilty. 
The Bible shows us that injustice is everywhere. Some people actively promote justice while other people benefit from injustice. Some people promote injustice, other people benefit from injustice. And we're all participating in injustice somehow, actively or passively. And Amos calls Israel to have a complete turnaround. He wants them to repent and turn to God. He wants them to be converted to the Lord. Where there is no longer justice, only oppression, they must live in the complete opposite way. Righteousness must be allowed to flow like a river. Look at verse 25. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. The Israelites of the northern kingdom were repeating the same sins that had been characteristic of that rebellious generation in the wilderness. When they were in the wilderness, you can read stories of them worshipping God in the tabernacle, but they also secretly worshipped pagan images that they brought from Egypt. These Israelites in the northern kingdom were doing the same thing, worshipping the true God, and then also the cow. In Bethel and Dan, it says in 1 Kings 12. So Israel were oppressing people, promoting injustice, not showing people dignity or treating them fairly. And on top of that, in their worship, they were blending with paganism. So you can see why God is angry with them and does not accept their religion. And he's calling them to participate in their righteousness and justice. But they, they don't, just don't do it. And that's why he punishes them by scattering them beyond Damascus, it says in verse 27. God's response to Israel and to all humanity's widespread injustice was to give the gift of Jesus who did righteousness and justice. He died on behalf of the guilty. And God declares Jesus, as, as he rises from the dead, as the righteous one. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, this is Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us on the cross, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' righteousness he offers to us because there's no way we could live out that righteousness in the way God wants us to, in any other way. Jesus offers his life to the guilty, so that the guilty can be declared righteous. When people receive that righteousness, if you've ever received that righteousness, your response will be to then be excited about what God is doing for you, and want to spread that righteousness, that justice to other people, those right relationships. It's making other people's problems your problems. And this is a radical, difficult life for the Christian disciple. It's not an easy life. It's hard. This is what Jesus famously taught in the story of the Good Samaritan. You then live sacrificially for other people. So to finish, we can look to another prophet who sums this all up in a few words and says what Israel should have been doing. And this is Micah who says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Let's pray for that. Lord God, uh, we look to the, uh, the Israelites and we think of ourselves and we think about our own ways that we um, participate in injustice and we know that we can only be declared righteous because of what Jesus has done. We pray as a church that we will be a, a church that embraces costly grace, that we're filled with grace-filled people that do not take your grace for granted. We pray that our worship will be true. 
Uh, we pray that we'll be a church that promotes righteousness and justice, not only amongst ourselves, but amongst the whole community. Amen.